1: Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome
2: to the new books network. Kingdom has experienced a number of epical transitions of late, starting with its departure from the uh, European Union in early 2020, and more recently, the replacement of the chaotic conservative leader Boris Johnson by former Foreign Minister Liz Truss, and soon thereafter, the passing of Queen Elizabeth after some seven decades on the British throne. In the aftermath of these developments, questions have been raised about the coherence of the United Kingdom, its relationship to Europe, and indeed its standing in the world. Quo vadis Britannia? Where is Britain going? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Adrian Favel, a leading expert on European migration and integration, as well as on contemporary Japanese art. He holds the chair in Sociology and Social Theory at the University of Leeds, where he directs the Bauman Institute and is incoming director of the Radical Humanities Laboratory at University College Cork in Ireland. He's the author of various works on migration, multiculturalism, cosmopolitanism, and cities, including most recently... The Integration Nation, Immigration and Colonial Power in Liberal Democracies from this year, 2022. In the aftermath of Brexit in the UK, he led the ESRC, that is the Economic and Social Research Council Project, Northern Exposure, Race, Nation and Disaffection in, quote, ordinary, unquote, towns and cities after Brexit. The project has generated a unique oral history archive of the experiences and views of older residents in the north of England since the Brexit referendum. Thanks for joining us today, Adrian Fable. Great to have you. Thanks, John. So let's start with Brexit. The, The Brexit referendum and the subsequent departure of the UK from the EU was widely an unexpected shock to the world and to Europe. Uh, Can you tell us what the UK's departure from the EU has meant in economic and social terms and indeed in everyday life?
0: Well, it's certainly been a historical turning point. Um, And I think that looking back, it's clear that um, that that It's really shifted Britain from being at the center of Europe to now being a periphery of Europe. Um, my position has always been or that uh, you know, Europe was, um, in, mon- in many sen- uh, Br- Britain was, in many senses, the, the uh, a, a central focal point of, of the European dynamic um, in the 1990s and 2000s. And London, in many ways, was the capital of Europe. It was the, the city with the most draw, um, very dynamic economy very open economy Um, lots of people moving there to work there all of that of course has come to an end with the Brexit vote which was a vote in many ways to end freedom of movement in the UK and I certainly see that as the core driving force of of the Brexit vote Um, and so the transformation is is dramatic uh, in that Um, We still are living in Britain, of course, with the consequences of all of the free movement. There's lots of people living in Britain who are EU nationals, uh, who've been in this rather ambiguous status since Brexit. Um, They've effectively become immigrants who now have to kind of adopt a more uh, immigrant attitude towards settlement and becoming citizens of Britain, settling in Britain rather than Seeing Britain as one part of Europe that they were living in as, in, as Europeans, um, and uh, it shifted. Therefore, it sh- you know it shifted the the kind of economic uh, um, uh, benefits of, of of European Union in that sense. Uh, and we're seeing increasingly, I think, over time now, the consequences of. Uh, the uh, uh, Johnson and the Conservative Party's decision to opt out of, of, of the free market, um, uh, the single free market. So, um, you know, now Britain is really having to come to terms with um, hard borders, and the consequences of taking back control and having sovereign power over your own legislation and your own markets um, also means that the, all of the um, existing agreements with the EU have broken down or are, are, are becoming more difficult, uh, and this is having a lot of impact on everyday life. It's obviously impacting the economy, impacting trade and businesses, impacting everyday travel. Uh, and you know I think there's been a mental shift as well in the British population. You do feel that there is a, a sort of sense that suddenly the island mentality is much stronger, uh, perhaps compensated in some ways by um, aspects of Brit- Britain's Positioning in the world, um, and uh, you know, other international links that it has. But the the most obvious links that it it was benefiting from were those with its closest neighbours. Over a long period of time, Britain was very central to the European Union project. It got many of the things that it wanted in the European Union. British the, the European Union was coming to resemble Britain uh economically in many ways over time. Um when we talk about neoliberalism and so on. Um, in you know, many senses, Mrs. Thatcher got the way, the kind of European Union that she wanted, um, and uh, you know it's kind of paradoxical then that Britain left, left it, and has paid is paying a price. I think for for that, and I think we're also seeing it in the sim, simple fact that, that that there is a a real deep uh, um, existential kind of crisis in British British life at the moment. I mean, there's a real sense of of um, anxiety conflict and uh, confusion I think about where Britain is going Um, and of course when we talk about Britain we are talking about um, the United Kingdom of of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and there are all kinds of things now up in the air I think with Scotland and uh, Northern Ireland uh, in particular.
2: Well this is obviously very interesting and uh, concerning what you're describing. Uh, I mean Brexit is in some ways part of a much longer dynamic uh, of your of the UK's you know relationship or tension with you know the continent and this difference between the island nations and and uh, the continent itself and so you know the point that you make about this is a kind of peripheralization of the UK is obviously important um, and in the aftermath of this you as I mentioned in the introduction you've undertaken this uh, project on so-called Northern exposure. And, you know, I I only saw a little bit of what the work has been about in the film that you pointed me to, Um, but I'd be interested to hear you, you know, tell us more about the specifically Northern kind of dimension of this dynamic and what you found in this research project.
0: Yeah. Um, So I've always been, as you know, kind of an international and comparative scholar and always tried to work on Britain in a comparative context and worked internationally. And um, much of the work that I've been doing the last few years has been driven by a a, a necessity of of coming to terms, I think, with with the politics that has been happening in Britain. I also came back to Britain just before Brexit professionally. Uh, I was working in France um, and have lived through um, the transformations and something which obviously is, has been uh, personally very difficult for me as well because uh, you know seeing myself as a, as a strong EU citizen and somebody um, living in a kind of you know, transnational European space um, and all this has led me to um, uh, conceive of, of, of work really on brexit to try and try and understand the historical transformation that has, has taken place I mean what we've what we've seen, what we're seeing clearly in Britain, um, in the time leading up to Brexit and, and the period since, that has taken us through COVID um, to uh, the triumph of Boris Johnson, um, and now the fall of Boris Johnson, and uh, and the um, uh, the end of the reign of Queen Elizabeth, and so on. I mean, this is a, this is clearly an, a, a huge historical turning point period. I think in British history. And the, the project that we put together at Leeds uh, with a team of, team of my colleagues, um, so it's a, it's a really collaborative project with a number of different uh, sociologists, um, was uh, to, to do a kind of sociological deep dive on, on the kind of um, underlying histories driving some of the, um, the Brexit vote and particularly the sense of disaffection that, that exists in the country. And a lot of this in popular discussion and in academic analysis uh, was located um, in the north of England. Um, The north of England was seen as the kind of heartland of the Brexit vote. And of course, over time, it has also been seen as the crucial part of the country that has shifted its opinions to elect Boris Johnson, effectively. So we talk about in Britain, the collapse of the Red Wall. These are former... Post uh, former industrial uh, heartland towns and cities in the north of England, very much identified with um, uh, you know the industrial legacies of these places, uh, uh, working class populations. Um, we're talking about obviously Manchester and Leeds and Newcastle and other places, big big cities in the the north of England, um, and then the 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 other parts of the north of England around these these larger cities. There are a lot of um, mid-sized cities, smaller places that are even more dramatic examples of post-industrial decline. So we wanted to put a pro- put together a project out of this, this backdrop, a sociological project um, that would look at the um, post-industrial legacies and trajectories of, of parts of the north of England and how that has played into the Brexit vote identifying in other words locations that were typical places where there was a very high vote for Brexit but also uh, historically very high support for the Labour Party um, and uh, and industrial politics Um, but places perhaps that are shifting also to, to vote Conservative but not the big cities where so we didn't want to look at this in Manchester or Leeds, for example, because these are big cities that actually resemble more London when you go to them. They're cosmopolitan, super diverse places. A lot of incoming populations, a lot of global investment, um cosmo you know, with, with the culture and the, the environment of this. But, so we, we wanted to look more at these peripheral, peripheral urban locations and the second tier of, of towns and cities. And we chose a number of places across the north. Um, quite famous towns and cities, Preston, Halifax, Wakefield, and Middlesbrough. Um, some people will have heard of them through sports teams, like uh, football teams typically, um, you know, often associated with these places. Very strongly proud, strong identity type places that that were often very rich in the past and that were centres of major industries, um, textile industries in the case of Preston and Halifax. Wakefield is a coal-based um City with a long long history. Middlesbrough is the steel industry, uh, and other heavy industries, chemical industries and so on. Um, these are all th- industries that substantially collapsed in the 1970s and 80s, um, have gone through post-industrial transformations, but are also quite interestingly diverse places. They're also places as well as white working classes. You have British Asian, Working classes in large numbers, um, some Black British, and increasingly uh, significant numbers of the recent migrants to the UK um, from Eastern Europe, um, either Polish or Romanian, typically. So there is a kind of super diversity in some of these places. By that super diversity, this is a concept from Steve Vertovec, the anthropologist. Um, super diversity is is when you have different types of new migrations and often new forms of mobility. Um, so transient populations overlaying onto an existing relatively stable, um, pattern of in Britain, the British case, post-colonial, um, populations. So, um, you know, we talk about black British and Asian British as part of a kind of classic post-war immigration and settlement. And, uh, in fact, you know, colonial, uh, movement within the empire effectively that brought populations to Britain um overlaying in the 1990s and 2000s particularly with a lot of new migrations from Europe um, globally other kinds of sources and uh, especially um, East European workforces so this creates a a new kind of dynamic and you can imagine a a kind of multivariate tension between populations so um you know, old kinds of racism towards Black British or Asian British, who in the north of England are predominantly Muslim, Pakistani origin, um, uh, could still be there and still be part of the race relations of, of these localities. But but the rela- race relations can also involve difficult relationships, say, between an Asian-British population and an incoming East European population in both directions. You have British Asians effectively rejecting new migrants um, on the one hand, or you have East Europeans who have certain sorts of racist views who, who you know find it difficult being around um, black and brown populations in, in the localities. So um, that's the sort of backdrop that we're looking at, and we we had a strong in Northern Exposure we had a strong um, intuition that um, that race and uh, immigration were a big part of the Brexit vote. Um, and that uh, in order to understand disaffection, we'd also need to understand how these issues were playing out, and particularly how these issues were playing out in relation to ideas of the nation, and particularly the idea of the sovereign nation that is taking back control of society, of the economy. Uh, in relation to the European Union, which had forced it to have open borders. Um, this is the kind of rhetoric, of course, of Nigel Farage um, and um, his campaign for um, his, the UKIP party, the UK Independence Party, that he led um, the campaign, that he led for, for decades, effectively, to, to bring Brexit to, 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 uh, to the moment, to, to, to make it happen. Um, now, uh, yeah
2: well i was going to jump in and and say you know there's certain aspects of this that sound very familiar from the american story right um <laughs> post-industrial towns, cities that are stripped of their former industrial base, the, you know, populations that worked in those industries and enjoyed, you know, middle-class lifestyles with relatively low levels of education uh, are now, you know, facing deterioration, neglect, Uh, the, you know, phenomenon of of, uh, deaths of despair and, and, you know, the attendant sorts of... uh, maladies. Um, But the difference, uh, I think, is that, you know, is what you're describing as this super diversity. And, you know, in the US, uh, in recent decades, I mean, the immigration profile since 1965 has been, you know, utterly transformed. Everybody seems to have thought that that would renew streams of European uh, immigration into the United States. But what actually happened, of course, was, you know, huge numbers, relatively speaking, of Latino immigrants, first from Mexico and now from sort of throughout Latin America. And of course, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, significantly, although I think we're only slowly kind of focusing on this, is the, you know, significant influx from Asia, Now, the Asian populations are, by and large, I think, seen more as a kind of model minority. So uh, whereas the Latino populations are, you know, good workers, but they're brown and maybe not so sophisticated or whatever. And, um, you know, so there's a kind of racial issue there. But but the Asian population in the United States, the Asian, you know, immigrant population is generally seen as a, you know, a kind of positive uh, for the country. I think, and so in that sense, maybe this is different from what you're describing in the UK. But, but other, I mean, how would you sort of, you know, since you talked about working generally comparatively, uh, how would you see this comparison?
0: Yeah. So there's been a lot, lot of interaction between, uh analysis on Britain about by, um, by British um, scholars studying Britain um, and uh, the US and you know, analysis of, of the trump phenomenon and polarization in in the US um, and our, our project was set up to challenge what we think are kind of quite simplistic binary polarizations that that exist in this literature and I think this could apply to some extent to the US but I think is really important in in stressing in the UK. Um, and without going into the details about the literature, there have been a number of tropes in the British explanations for Brexit that have been popular amongst public opinion scholars, particularly, whose work is driven by um, survey methodologies, often um, public survey type, well, pr- they often don't private companies, but surveys that are done, doing these relatively quick and fast um stylized types of surveys on you know, small numbers that, that generate um, decisive kinds of results about, about what's, what, what supposedly is driving people's new public opinion positions. Um, and we've had arguments, therefore, circulating, on the one hand, about um, uh, uh, the, the social spatial polarisation uh, that is, has been going on, particularly between the, no- between the south of England, the rich south east of England, London and all of that, versus the north or versus peripheries we talk about the left behind population there's a series of kind of phrases that are very common i think in both countries that that capture the the underlying source of politics but but tend to reduce it to a series of sort of stylized um, explanations the left behind population the social spatial polarization is one a second is the the uh, something that lays onto this which is the cultural war explanation the kind of idea that there's a a massive conflict between urban locations with diverse, cosmopolitan, young, um, forward-looking, transforming environments, and the left-behind peripheries that are stuck in the past, national, refusing to to change, um, um, feeling anxious about globalization, and so forth, whereas the the central cities are, are embodying globalization um and um and so, so uh, uh this this kind of opposition and and the, and the other the other key opposition of course is 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 an idea that there's that, that we have diverse diversity in urban locations and we have white working classes in periphery locations and it's a specifically a kind of um racialized um polarization that that happens now you know, we, we we wanted to challenge this partly because there's facts about about the north that are really important um that that are to do with the fact that the, you know the working class is not a white british working class in in a kind of traditional sense in any simple in simple way the working class is substantially minority um uh, origin populations um it's black and it's asian british and I'll stress again asian british means south asian always and you know, it's really we're talking about um either people of Indian or Pakistani Bangladeshi origin usually, the, although there is a growing Chinese British population, which is also playing into these these issues in some places. Um, so there's the working the, uh, kind of mischaracterization of the working class, a mischaracterization I think of uh, and this is shown by some of the more sophisticated research on Brexit of of where the real heartland of the vote was, it often wasn't in the most periphery the most marginalised places, people in very marginalised places, and there are some dramatically deprived areas that we've studied as well in this in this this uh, project, um, in places like Middlesbrough um, and Preston. Um, these these places are um, uh, uh, are not places where people vote that much. I mean, people don't vote. That, you know, when when they're when they're that marginalised, they're often very alienated and left out of the political process. So the locus of of voting for, for Brexit was often. Um, particularly, I think um, lower middle class suburbs of of these uh, industrial towns, which were often white, because there was a white flight involved. These were often um, second, third generation working class British white British families that had moved away from the the um, inner city uh, urban locations um, and had those corresponding sorts of attitudes in some sense. Um, so, a the you know, the people who might see themselves as working class, but who have you know, a large house, a mortgage, and three cars, and uh, you know, relatively affluent in other measures, but culturally, um, uh, have some certain sorts of um, values that are rooted in that way, um, and and also that we wanted to capture. You know, there was this kind of the the, the most obvious stylization that we get in Britain is is there's middle class people in and middle class educated, um, globalized people in the in London and the southeast of England, and in the north you have um, uh, less less well educated, um, uh, working class, and uh, you know highly industrialised populations that are somehow more more nationalised, and and we you know basically failing to capture the, the the diversity of the north and the fact that you have a, you know a range of 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 affluence and diversity and um, you know both both ethnic cultural diversity but also socioeconomic diversity across the north, and very different. Historical trajectories in the four towns and cities that we've been studying. So, um, we wanted to capture all of that. Um, challenge the public opinion research, and challenge also the, the tendency of other kinds of uh, qualitative researchers to research Brexit by um, basically uh, doing a kind of vox pop research, which is um, uh, you know you go up to somebody and say, "Are you angry? Uh, you know, you're angry about Brexit. You're angry about um, British politics." shove the microphone in their face and people will give you what you kind of asked for. They will express their anger and disaffection that way. We want to do something that was opposite methodologically to that. So what we devised really were, um, yes, looking looking for people who might have voted Brexit and who would have strong political opinions uh, and were coming from deprived areas or parts of these different sorts of populations that we're interested in um, and would have stories to tell, but really to talk to people who would have long-term stories, personal stories to tell about these locations and, and in a sense, explaining their own views and so forth against the backdrop of their own lives and the transformations that they've lived through. Uh, And we also focus very much on elderly populations. So we ended up doing around 160 oral history interviews with white British, um, Asian British, black British, and some East European um, residents who... um, were long-term residents, were over a certain age and had, who had something to tell us about the the social, cultural, economic transformations of the places that they were living in. So they're long-term residents of these places. Um, and of course, when you do that, you get a much more complex and nuanced sense of of the history that we've been living through, I think. Um, I don't think... It, I think it, 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 it doesn't offer a clear explanation of Brexit in some sense, but it does offer... Um, a much better account of this historical transformation that Britain has been living through. And we combined this with work on with with local authorities, with a lot of the third sector people and people working in um, the local councils, local government, um, to try and understand also, you know, to, to, to help them, first of all, access populations that they found it difficult to talk to. So we were contributing something to them, but also listening very much to their issues of governance in a period where um, local government has been severely run down by central government, um, has faced austerity, removal of funding, and who then had to face um, not only the, the um, fallout from Brexit, which caused an awful lot of um, tension and you know a lot of hate crimes and a lot of um, aggression and so forth um, uh, amongst people. Um, but also COVID and, and dealing with the COVID crisis that has been a moment of absolute social crisis where the local authorities were absolutely necessary. And um, you know we've charted those those changes in, in in the stories we've got, the ethnographies we've got. And um, I think I, ultimately, um, you know, we're we're less likely to contribute to the um, the passing literature. I think on trump and brexit and the rise of populism but perhaps we will leave behind a social history of the brexit covid johnson period of britain that i think as i said retrospectively will be seen as a huge turning point in british history we really don't know where britain is going at this point um and it seems to be going to a pretty bad place in, in many ways i mean it's not not looking very good um but you know nor is it looking very good in many other countries currently politically, in terms of future of liberal democracy. So we, yeah, we, we hope we'll contribute to something to that, and um, you know, tell, tell a, a kind of social history of of the north of England, which is of course a peripheral place that you know has has historical significance, but is often left out of of discussions of of, of Britain, which are often based on ideas of London or ideas of um, you know the south. Right, country. right.
2: So, I mean, I'm very struck, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, by your, uh, you know, characterization as, of Britain as a kind of country adrift. And uh, that can't have been helped by the passing of the monarch who's been in place for 70 years. And um you know so i'm sort of interested in uh, your sense of uh, britain's place in the world and, and which is obviously affected by this and it, and it's is not in, unconnected to your concerns about you know the recent experiences or long-term experiences of people in the north that is uh, the monarchy and the empire you know, probably have had significant played a significant role in people's sense of who they were and what Britons were in the world and where the country stood. And I mean, I always remember um, I was in South Africa once and I was watching the sports news, and the big sports news that day was nothing in South Africa it was the England Pakistan Test match in cricket. And I was sort of, you know, it just opened my eyes to the kind of reality of the ongoing, you know, significance of the British Empire in the form now of the Commonwealth. And I gather some people now are talking about some countries are talking about leaving the Commonwealth because they don't like Prince Charles and he's going to be the king and and that sort of thing. But, you know, in general, uh, the British Empire you know, left behind uh, a significant legacy that's ongoing, uh, that's perhaps less, you know, heralded, so to speak now. But uh, so anyway, I wonder what you could say about the, you know, place of Britain in the world in the context of this major transformation that you've described so well.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've just also published a book called The Integration Nation. Um, it's called Immigration and Colonial Power in Liberal Democracies, and it, it draws a lot on, on Britain, mm-hmm um but also you know other other European countries in North America in in its account. But it's 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 an account, a theoretical account in some sense trying to explain the ongoing ongoing power of of Britain um and its colonial legacies, um, which I think are are very much centred in in the ability of the nation to uh reconceive itself, rebrand itself in relation to in the the international diversity of m- mobile populations and, and immigration and particularly multiracial, multiethnic diversity um, within the country, um, if you can turn that into a feature of the nation, then you, you have a much more powerful nation in the world that can ma- perhaps maintain a kind of colonial relationship with other places because it's a desirable location. It's the place people want to move to. And that's kind of what Britain became in, in very much in the 1990s, um, Britain was, um, I think, on a, on a remarkable trajectory towards uh, a, 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 a ex- not only an extreme, extremely dynamic, open global economy, new populations coming in, lots of new migrants uh, from around the world and European free movers, um, overlaid onto a multiracial post-colonial legacy of the populations we've been talking about, the older Asian Black British, and, um, and it was kind of working, you know, it was a sort of um, move towards a, a new sort of diasporic Britain, um, where um, minority identities were getting, uh, you know, were becoming were, were very central in the British identity. Um, you had a sense of global positioning that was um, leading to a, a kind of, um, I, th- I think, a sort of post-national sort of nation in some ways. Um, Uh, uh, and it was associated with discussions around multiculturalism and particularly at the the high point of this around 2000s with with reflections on the future of multi-ethnic Britain, um, which is a very important report, came out with Bikku Parek, Parek report, um, but involved scholars such as uh, particularly Stuart Hall, um, the famous um, sociologist, Tarek Madhud and others that were Reimagining a you know a positive vision of the nation that might encompass these these diversities uh, and the di- the dynamic of change, the global dynamic of change. Now, what sadly has happened since two thousand, and this is my account, of course, um, is is uh, a, a massive uh, rolling back and rowing back from that kind of high point of of a sort of post national diasporic multicultural, multiracial Britain to something that is has kind of lost the plot in some sense in terms of Benefiting from diversity and openness, I mean, I think there is a, a rebordering that has gone on of Britain. It started under New Labour because New Labour basically got cold feet over this report; they were attacked very heavily in the press. Um, and it was the beginning, I think, also of the you know the anti-Europeanism that ultimately led towards um, Brexit, because there was a sense of of, of too, too much diversity, too much change, too much transformation. Britain was was going too too fast. There was, of course, an economic crisis. There, I mean, some set first there was nine eleven. There was economic crisis. There was you know, other crises on the horizon. Um, these things have built up towards a, a particular sort of political reaction that, that leads to Brexit. Now, so this is a long term account. Now, um, you know what we're seeing. I think with with um, uh, the death of um, Queen Elizabeth and the, um, the the period of mourning and and uh, for, you know, celebrations of her of her reign and so forth is uh, very straightforwardly a reaffirmation of British nationalism and British sovereign power and British colonial power. Um, that's what it is. It's a, a brand in the world. It's powerful, often for cultural reasons. You know, soft power is is the, the key to British power, of course. Um, but it is let's not let's not let's not also um, um, avoid the fact that soft power also um, masks an awful lot of historical hard power. Um, And a a country, I think, a nation in Britain, a nation in Europe that has never adequately come to terms with what it did in colonial terms. Um, Britain has always been a good guy. It's always been on the winning side. It was always the, you know, the nice colonial nation against, you know, other European evil nations or whatever. Um, It simply has not come to terms with historically with these these things. Now, I I, I wouldn't want to predict what's going to happen, the upshot of, you know, is this a is this a final hurrah for the royal family, or is it? Is it? Is this ongoing proof of the power of Britain in sovereign terms, cultural terms? Um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. Um, the royal family has always been very good at maintaining its position. I think there is very little appetite for republicanism in Britain, but we may see. You know, we may see um, the Scottish and the Irish moving away. Um, we may see other Commonwealth countries really thinking. Well, do we really want Prince Charles on our? Um, currency um as king um and so on, there may be there may be a loss of power. Um I do think Britain is is facing a bit of a crisis because it it, it can't um I mean Alan Millwood um studied uh you know attempts in the nineteen fifty, for example, to keep Britain out of the EU and, and and embed the EU embed Britain in its Commonwealth and in its global positioning. We had all the you know global Britain rhetoric in the nineteen fifties. Not joining the EU, and it just wasn't an option in, in the in the mid mid to longer term. Britain had to be part of the EU to really be a viable proposition in the world, and I think that that is still the case. You know, we have a lot of new deals and so forth around the world in terms of trade terms, but it's just nothing to replace. It just really does not replace the basic um, economic uh, interdependence that Britain had with the continent and continues to have, but now is made incredibly difficult by paperwork and borders and um you know the the stuff that uh, happens when you opt out of of a single market um obviously you know other people would would have other views about 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 british power in the world and i i don't I, i do want to sort of stress that not not to underestimate the soft power and cultural power of britain it's remarkable just what what kind of attention britain gets given its size and and so forth but that is also rooted in colonial mentalities and um, longer histories that are built up on myths and um, I think delusions about British history that um, we see playing out over and over again in British politics. And um, the shocking part is that really, you know, twenty 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 to 30 years ago, it really looked, looked like Britain was going in a different direction. Um, and I think Britain was modernizing in a, in a very different way that um, put it in a very strong position in Europe, and it was benefiting massively from its EU membership, and um, unfortunately, it was never made politically sustainable. And there was always the risk, with the um, the particular British political system, that that a very small part of the extreme right of the the Conservative Party could seize the agenda, and force what has effectively happened, and, and where we're at now. Right.
2: So Britain uh, has to deal with the vice of the virtue of reasserting its uh, sovereignty, it sounds like. Uh, but I wonder what you would say, you know, looking at it sort of from the other direction. I mean, how is this affecting, how is Brexit affecting the EU? I mean, there were a lot of concerns during the debate over Brexit uh, that this would be the beginning of a you know broader movement that other countries would seek to, Uh, pull out and uh, I can't say I've seen a lot of that but I'd be interested in your thoughts on the you know implications of of Brexit for Europe itself or for the European Union.
0: Yeah I mean let's I think we should be clear that the EU is in crisis it's in deep crisis Um, not not just I mean not just because of Britain deciding to leave or I think although I think this was a, a, a terrible moment for the EU I mean I think it was the EU power was very much based on the, the uneasy balance of Germany, France, and Britain, particularly as the major powers, and, um, and the way in which that enabled other smaller powers to operate in a, in a space. Britain was influential, very much on the direction of the EU, um, and uh, you know you can sort of see that continuing to be the case. Um, I think in some ways, you know, the EU can get on with its its own mission without the without Britain in in, in certain ways. Um, um, it will do okay without Britain, but um, we do have a crisis in, in the EU. The EU has become a, a much less attractive proposition in recent years, with, with its, you know, with both its economic policies and its policies around borders. Um, we've got rogue states, you know, in Hungary, um, Poland, potentially that that are not playing by the rules. Um, the crisis is out there. Um, you know, against that, you see the relative stability of Germany um and a sense that there is a kind of that, you know that there is a sort of stabilizing factor in some sense with with eu membership um holding together nations and you know we, we might anticipate there's you know the big crises that are around the corner economically in terms of um inflation cost of living and so forth i mean it will obviously be be interesting to see what you know whether whether the eu the larger collective like the eu weathers it better than Britain which seems very vulnerable at the moment to to this so um, so I, you know, I, I think, um, it, 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 has been, uh, I think it's a problematic moment, you know, for, for the European union. Um, and it's also re- you know, created new problems around membership of countries like Ireland, um, and their relationship to the two sides. Um, and, uh, uh, it's, it's still, you know, it's, it's hard to see, um, really anybody um, ultimately benefiting from, from the fact that, that Britain is, um, has, has not, is no longer part of a, uh, of, of a collective power that was able to kind of organise itself, um, you know, on, on a continental level, including Britain. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to be living with the consequences of this for quite some time.
2: Right. So we'll have to have you back and discuss that all further in due course. But for now, that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Adrian Favel of the University of Leeds for sharing his insights about recent developments in the UK and the European Union. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.